This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. I'm your host, Casey Finey, and this is Creative Conversation, a Fast Company podcast. Anyone who knows me knows I'm a fanboy of film composers, of all things. I mean, I know it's an odd thing to claim, but I'm an odd guy, so here we are. And over the course of my career, I have had the opportunity to interview quite a few composers, some on this very podcast, but I don't think there's a composer quite like Mark Mothersbaugh. You may know Mark from his days as an 80s icon in the band Devo, but his career scoring film, TV shows, and video games stretches over 200 titles, including Thor Ragnarok, Dawson's Creek, Rugrats, and even everyone's current favorite, Tiger King. Not only is Mark clearly prolific and versatile, but his creativity also expands into building his own unique instruments, creating weird, subversive, amazing visual art, and more. In our conversation, Mark explains how dismantling and rebuilding the tools of your craft can lead to creative breakthroughs, and how he's learned to reconcile his art with the mainstream, which may or may not include subliminal messaging. All right. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Oh, I'm tickled pink to be here. (laughs) Even through Zoom. So, yeah, I mean, you've obviously had this amazingly long and colored career, which we will certainly get to, but... I wanted to start by asking, what's your earliest memory of doing something creative in a significant way? Ah, almost the very end of second grade. It was May of second grade. And uh, I didn't get, get along well in school. I, was get, I got spanked all the time and disciplined. Back in the 50s, they could put you in the corner and, and you know, do the dunce cap thing and, and humiliate you for, for, I was like, I just remember, you know, it's like being in second grade and like a teacher saying to me, okay, Mark, read the numbers on the blackboard. And I go, what's a blackboard? And every, all the kids would laugh. And then the teacher would go, all right, smart man, get in the corner. And I'd go, how do people know the right answers to this stuff? And um, somewhere uh, the teacher was... Finally, after spanking me and disciplining me for a, for a year, my second grade teacher finally was watching me trying to look at a book like this. And she said, called my parents and said, you should probably take him in to get his eyes examined. And they said, oh, this guy's legally blind. And somehow I had, I had just enough uh, light and dark that I could see and fogginess. You know, it was kind of like a Monet painting or something, like one of those, you know, those smeary paintings of lily pads on a, you know, where you can't really see anything. Uh, But I I could see just enough that I could make it to my house and walk a mile down sidewalks and cross streets till I got to my school. I I remember the day I went in and got my eyes uh, examined and came back and got glasses. And the first day I walked out of this, this office, it was like the world was totally different. I'd been in a totally different world that I hadn't been in for seven years. And all of a sudden, I saw everything at once for the first time in my life. It's like we, we were one, we were like about half a block away from this hill that was right above my elementary school. And we got up there and I looked down in shock. I saw, I lived in a housing development where there was like thousands of houses that were all for factory workers in Akron, Ohio. And um, I saw them for the first time. I'd never seen them. And I saw roofs on houses, and I saw clouds, and I saw birds. I'd never seen a bird flying before. 
And I saw my school. I'd never, I walked to it, but I never knew what it looked like. And um, I saw trees. I'd never seen the leaves on trees. It was amazing. To me, a tree was just something that I, I knew of trees from running into them when we were playing, you know, and I go, I go, oh. And it was just the, you know, the, 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 the trunk of the tree was all, but I'd never, I couldn't see past six inches. And so I couldn't, I didn't know what was up there. And it was just this amazing, I saw telephone wires. I, it was amazing. It was like the world had changed to this amazing place that all of a sudden it made so much more sense than it did, you know, the day before. And um, I went, you know, I was in school the next day and I was drawing trees and I, I was drawing trees because I was just impressed with what they look like. And my teacher who had been, you know, spanking me and disciplining me and sending me to the office and doing things for like the whole year, looked down and she said, you draw trees better than me. And it was like a shock. The fact that she said that, and it was like, she wasn't like just grabbing me by the ear or, you know, like yanking me out of my seat or something. Cause that's, that's how you did it in the fifties. I went home that night and I dreamt I was going to be a famous artist. I swear to God, cause I looked in books and I'd seen things like Van Gogh and Rembrandt and different artists. I'd seen artwork that I, cause I could hold the book up like this. And I dreamt I was going to be an artist. Right. I love that. And, you know, that's the thing, because I feel like if you, obviously for many artists, it's all about taking in the world and, you know, displaying it how they see it or, or you know, basically just seeing the world through their eyes. And in a lot of your later art, it's, I often wonder, like, how does Mark Mothersbaugh see the world? Because you really have such a unique voice as an artist. And so this may sound like an odd question, but how how do you see the world and how would you describe how you reflected in your art? You know, it's like, um, I remember thinking I didn't want to ever be called an artist because once I got to school and met people that called themselves artists, I thought, I don't think he's an artist. He's like a craftsperson maybe, but he doesn't. There's nothing I feel artistic about what I don't want to be called an artist. I don't want to be grouped in with those people. And so I used to think of myself as a, uh, a social scientist, even when I was a kid. I used to think, I'm, I'm here from somewhere and I'm observing life on planet Earth. Okay, so um, in 1970, I was at Kent State. I kind of ended up there totally as a fluke, partially because it was the, the Vietnam years and I thought, I can't think of a single Vietnamese person I would want to kill for any reason. I mean, I don't care. I don't care if they don't like my president or if they love their their communist leader. I can't. I I, I can't. I would be no help to the U.S. government in going over to Vietnam and killing anybody. And so I was panicked because nobody in my family had ever gone to school. But by a miracle, my school teacher had had. Um, she'd enrolled me in something that they used to have back then. I had won some local county in Ohio, not a big deal, not a high hurdle, but I won some awards for art shows. And so my art teacher, she just put my name into this list of, 
kids that were in danger of not getting to go to college. Hey, I, I somehow I got put on that list and, and I got offered a partial scholarship, which meant I could work nights and pay my way through school. Uh, and I thought, that sounds better to me than like going to Vietnam because there's, I would be, that's the wrong place for me to be. And so we were protesting the war in Vietnam in 1970 and the governor of Ohio said, okay, we've had enough of this. And he sent in the National Guard. Uh, the kids took it up a notch and burnt down the ROTC building on campus. And then the next day they loaded their guns and killed, shot, shot 33 kids, you know, and then killed four of them, you know, all in, you know, all in like a five or 10 minute span. It was crazy. We, we were totally in shock. They closed down our school. And uh, there was a guy, an older guy that uh, named Jerry Casale, who I'd been writing music. I know I'd been doing artwork with him. We were both visual artists, but I, I earned a living um, at a nightclub at night playing in a, in a top 40s band. And so we started getting together because uh, they closed the school down, so we couldn't, we couldn't really go in and do artwork. But, but um, he played bass, and so we started writing music together, and we were like, what's going on with the world? What's happening? And we decided that what was happening was things were going down. And he, he, we found this book. It was called The Truth About De-Evolution, How Man Came Into Being Through Cannibalism. And it was like a Yugoslavian anthropologist, and it's kind of a crazy book. It's not, it's not a really perfect book, but it, but it, but it posits this idea that humans are the only unnatural species on the planet, and that we're the ones that are out of touch with nature, and that's why we're destroying everything. And um, humans were not the center of the universe like we claim we were. We, you know, saying, you know that. We were in the image of whoever built this whole thing. And uh, so we thought, that's what we see. We see, we see humans as like being a danger to the, to the whole planet and, and not really even knowing what they're doing. So, so, um, right. so about them, I started writing music and we thought we were an art movement, actually. We thought we were gonna be an art movement called, we, we had, tried out the de-evolutionary army, we tried out um, uh, the de-evolution band, we tried out sextet Devo, you know, to make it sound jazzy or something. And then um, we finally just settled on, well, we're gonna be Devo, because we thought that'd be like, you know, there's been an Art Nouveau and an Art Deco, now it's time for an Art Devo. And so, so we thought we were gonna be like Agitprop. You know, we loved, you know, we loved cabaret theater and, the art movements that were going on in Europe between World War One and World War Two, like Dadaism especially was close to us, and you know surrealism and um, and uh, Bauhaus and and ballet mechanique, you know the the um, the kind of very mechanized dance ideas, and then the futurists in Italy who said that the 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 orchestra does not contain instruments wide enough a range to successfully convey industrial society. And so they were like adding fog horns and putting a card in the spoke of a wheel and spinning it and, and um, air raid sirens and things like that. And, 
And so we thought, well, we're Arctic Gold. We're going to be like, we're going to be kind of an offshoot of that. And we'll, we'll do agit prop theater and, and talk about this stuff. And, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of, in a way, that's kind of, I still have that. That's like how I formed as an artist is, is as someone that, that, um, has always been interested in de-evolution and watching and saying, hey, watch out everybody, or, you know, we're gonna end up with idiocracy. And then idiocracy, the movie came along and we thought, oh, that can't happen. And then it did. You know, we went from the smartest, most incredible president we ever had to like the most dangerous president we, we could ever have had. And it's been an interesting plummet you mentioned that Devo started more as an art movement than a traditional band. So how did that framework influence how you approached your music? I think my favorite time of Devo was not after we got to Hollywood. It was before we went and it was purist. And it was like, we weren't, you know, trying to like fit into a record company's idea of what a band was or you know, we were making films before MTV by about five or six years. And so all our films back then, um, I, I liked better than our later films, but also the same with the music because we kind of tried to like, like fit into the radio. And especially once we had a radio hit, then that kind of really changed things. But our earliest music to me, Jerry and I used to write these lyrics that were like beatnik, uh, sci-fi or they were like beatnik art art lyrics and i loved all that stuff that we were doing and musically we looked to people like um like uh uh the the original blues uh artists uh he he was a bass blues bass player so he was bringing that in into it and i was like looking at um TV commercials and sound effects and sci-fi, Italian sci-fi movies to put synthesizers in. I was like, um, I was trying to bring in, you know, like mortar blasts and V2 rockets and laser beams, you know, and, and I loved the early stuff, the very best, because it was the, probably the least musical and the most theatrical of all the music we were writing. You know, I, I find that the work that you do in building instruments absolutely fascinating because there's a lot of musicians who never, they, they can be incredibly skilled at playing whatever instrument or instruments that they do, but they may not be interested in diving in to learn how to make unique instruments or any instruments at all. So in kind of getting your hands dirty and getting in the nuts and bolts of instruments, I mean, has that given you any new appreciation for, for music or any new perspective? Oh, oh yeah. It, 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 it's been liberating in a way because you know, I can't even tell you how many hours of music I've created that that you have could have heard either in a theater or on a video game or on your phone. Uh, I think I've written music and mnemonics for every phone that's out there uh, for commercials and and television shows. I 125 different TV series. Some of them went six up six seasons or more. You know. Um, and 100 to 120 movies. I don't know the exact count, but you know, it's like, the thing is, is I feel like when you're doing that and you're, you're being that intense with writing music, you get to a point where you, do you ever go into like a guitar center or someplace like that? And there's a kid 
it's it sounds like Spinal Tap because their planes, their their riff that they play fast, or, or, and they do and you just hear, you know, like it's kind of like just noise pollution, but it's like they automatically go to it because that's their fastest thing, or that's the thing that they that they feel like would test out the guitar, and 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 it's like a cliche, you know, and and even I, I sit down and I put my hands on a keyboard, and it's really hard not to just do something. You go, I've done that a hundred times, you know, and you go, I, I'm, it's a, and you try and change it. And so writing for these instruments was very liber liberating for me. Like I, I've got, I have one I made that's 18 old, 150 year old squeeze um, with a big bellow at the end, um, fog horns and a couple, um, boxing ring bells and that's that's all and I've written music for that and and you can put them I, I haven't shown them in a museum yet but they're at my warehouse where I where I build things and I'm writing music for them now and I built some that are like a dog house that opens up and you look inside and there's all these different things like uh like a, a, a glockenspiel and different whistles and bells and things and <clears throat> and for me it makes me when you when you go up a keyboard and it doesn't go da 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 da, if you go it makes you think about music a whole different way. When you're you know and you can't play in a in in that fashion that that's been ingrained into your brain of of you know the the you know the tempered scale that that we all know so well. You know it's like instead it makes you stop. And, and think about, you know, the meaning behind something. If you touch a touch a key and make a, a note happen, make a sound happen, and so uh, yeah, these instruments they they feel it feels so good for me when I get to write for them. When I get to go over there to the this warehouse where I work out and and uh, create new music for them. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. One thing that I love about your career and being a composer is just how varied your projects are because, you know, you've composed for, you know, Rugrats, obviously, Dawson's Creek, The Royal Tenenbaums, The Lego Movie, Thor, Tiger King even. And so that's not even scratching the surface. You've just done so much and a lot of the projects are so different and so for you i mean how do you what's what's your approach i guess like take i would love an example of you know how you approach one project like i don't know composing something for thor versus doing something for your latest movie the willoughby's like with netflix so you know two very different projects so like how do you how do you how do you approach a project you know there's things that I won't do now because I'm old enough that I'm like, you know, I don't need to go there and do that. But but it's like Thor, for instance, um, I, I got a call and they said there's this Marvel. I, Marvel, I, I'll be honest with you up front. I never liked Marvel movies that much. I wasn't that impressed with them, to be honest with you. And uh, I never told that to Kevin. Because in the end, I had this incredible experience with them and I came to respect Marvel by the end of the, of the project. And especially Kevin and at the very top, he's so hands-on everything. And he's so, uh, he's, he loves 
what he's created with that company. And it's pretty impressive that they're, that they're like, and they're very humble, good people over there. But, but I, I wasn't a fan of it. I, you know, I have two daughters uh, and my neighbor had two boys and we had forced them into coming with us to the movies and seeing Frozen and uh, whatever year that was. And then, so they retaliated by making us go see something on Marvel, which, um, you know, like, uh, I don't even know what it was. It was one of those superhero movies. And, and I remember like about 20 minutes into it, I'm like really tired because I work every day. I get up at 5.30 and start, you know, my day. And, and I'm like going, oh, I could take a nap on this. And, you know, I'm falling asleep and there's this music going, and it's kind of like a bed of, you know, like adventure music underneath the scene. And I dozed off. And I woke up about 20 minutes later and the music was dun, 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 dun. It was the exact same piece of music. And um, when I met them, I said, how do you guys score your films? They go, well, we make it easy on the composer. And what we do is we say, just make a suite for us. You know, like give us a suite of battle music and give us a, you know, like a, you know, like a five or 10 minute piece of, um, uh, romance music, five or ten piece music, hero music, uh, five or ten piece you know, suspense, you know, you just do a few things like that, and then we cut it all together for you, and then I was like, well, that explains it. And I said, well, I'm going to do something different when I work with you guys. I'm going to write the music for every single cue in the film. I'm not going to, you know, like, write a suite and then just chop it up and paste it in, and, uh, but the reason why I took the film was because of the director, Taika Waititi. Um, I had seen this movie, and I wasn't a big vampire movie fan either. You know, I was like, okay, another vampire. But I saw this one, What We Do in the Shadows, and it was hilarious. And I thought, this is such a clever movie, you know? And then I said, I wonder who did. And they said, oh, a guy named Taika Waititi. And I'm, oh, that's great. So when I got a call to Marvel, and they said, well, there's this director that wants you to work for him, and the only he only wants to talk to one composer. He wants to talk to this guy, Mark Mosbaugh. But we've never worked with you. Can you do marble music? So I had to write them a few sample cues in kind of like a uh, Alan Silvestri style because it was a Thor movie they were talking about. And he had done the Thor movie before that. A very good job. He's an awesome composer. But um, yeah. I met Taika and I loved working with him. I thought, you know, uh, I called it right. This guy is like a, a New Zealand version of Wes Anderson. That's how I felt about him. He, I felt he was really an artist. And even to the point where when we did the film together, uh, the first version of the film was like three hours long. And um, Marvel kind of took out about 45 minutes of it. But the 45 minutes they took out was all this really fantastic stuff that he had done over the top, not Marvel style filming that looked more like Flesh Gordon. It was like way out. It was really way out. So as a child of the 90s, I have to ask you about Rugrats. That was one of the first animated projects you worked on. So what made you want to dive into animation and in particular an animated show about babies? Yeah, uh, Gabor and, and Arlene uh, of Klasky and Chupo. Gabor was... Um, Arlene was, uh, was born out here in California. She was a California girl, but Gabor was born in Hungary and hid in a suitcase in, the, in a trunk of a car to get into uh, to 
Poland or Germany, however he, wherever he came across the, um, the Iron Curtain and uh, came here. And, and then he started helping get other Hungarians and Ukrainians and Russians out here to do animation with him. And uh, that's how they, he, he came up with this style that was like, that's why I liked it, because I looked at the style and thought, that's, those kids aren't cute. <laughs> those were like freaking, it's like, like Tommy's head looked like it had been kicked around for a while before, like it was like a deflated beach ball or something. And, and they had these creepy little skinny arms and legs and then everybody's pelvises were like split way apart with nothing in between. <laughs> it was like, um, it was great. And, uh, and he was, uh, Gabor was a big fan of, um, uh, of um, avant-garde music. And so um, I, think his, I think the most commercial music he, he collected was Frank Zappa. And, um, but he liked this album I'd done called Music for Insomniacs. Uh, I, I released it on a label called Tokyo Radical Artists. And because I used to go to Japan a lot and write music with um, the, the weird art bands in, in uh, Japan during the 80s. And, um, and he heard it and he said, hey, can I use a song off of this for my kids show? And I go, well, I've worked on kids shows before. Let me see what you got. And, and so he let me write it. And, and uh, I don't know, I just really, I loved working with him. And, and Arlene and him were such a good combination in those days because he was kind of the, the arty, over-the-top guy, but she brought him back in and put the human side on things. And she took care of the family things that you needed in the stories to make them resonate and pay off and not just be weird. And so they, they, they really complimented each other. They were both amazing artists and uh, that was a good time. I enjoyed that. And one thing I, I really do want to touch on is the fact that you also compose for video games. I mean, you've done work for the Sims and Crash Bandicoot and, you know, and so many more. And so, you know, I think in many ways, video games are unique to TV and film because not only because you're an active player, you're an active player, not a passive viewer, but because you're spending way more time in these worlds. I mean, in most cases, there are just way more hours of gameplay in one game than like a film or a, a season of television. So does knowing that change how you approach creating music for video games? Because these are, these are worlds that people are sitting in for hours at a time. And so I, I does that something that affects how you how you compose a score for something you're absolutely right it's such a different animal that's what's that's what's exciting about it to me it's like that's why i like the different different um kind of uh disciplines because but but for um video games um i mean i, I started in the old old days i can't even remember the name of the game i did for i think it was activision or somebody but but they only had like like a couple, I could have something like six, eight bit sounds. So one, one of them would go. I could, I had. So that could be my drum kit, you know, and then, then I had a, a bass sound and then, but nothing lasted longer than like half a second. They were, they were even shorter than that. They were blips that you'd have to go. You couldn't go beep, you had to go beep, 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 and then you know, then they started making more space on the in the games for um, for audio. And uh, now it's it's amazing. I the, the, I'm working on a game now where I was just in Nashville recording an orchestra 
just right before the hurricane hit. And, um, you know, it's like you think about the music different because you, you're right. Level one, you might have to play it. I don't know the game, what game we're talking about, but if it's like, uh, I, did, I did a Homer Simpson game once where it's like, he's in the food court and, and the, you know, first time you play it, it might take you 30 minutes to get through the food court. So you have to be able to listen to that theme song for a while. But not only that, the, um, the uh, stakes go up as, as like he collects a burger and then you have this piece of music that's playing, but then you add something else into it. Like maybe the bass line comes in then boom, boom. Boom, 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 and then and then maybe then he he finds a pie and so he's got a burger and a pie and then and then then you bring in the strings or you bring in a guitar or a piano or something it's going da 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 and then um, you know after about you get like to do about five or six layers in these games and then maybe the last one's like crazy maybe it's like hi hats or something that's really makes it so that the whole cues excited and you have to think about what you're writing that okay some kids playing this and it's going to take him five minutes to grab that first hamburger you know but but the next time he plays it he might get it in one minute and then after that he might get it in five seconds and he just jumps past it and he gets to level two so you have to make your music so that it so that it works if like in the middle of a phrase, all of a sudden it comes in, you know? You have to you have to write your music in a stop. It's it's so fun, you know? It's like really makes you think about things that you don't normally think about when you're creating music, like for a, for like a, a band or something like that. You know, you, 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 you have to think about the layers and how you add them up and, and uh, how, you know, how it becomes additive synthesis. And then it goes to a whole nother piece of music and starts down you know, down at the bottom again, at the beginning of the layer, you know, whatever's, whatever's happening in the next, um, the next room or the next galaxy or wherever you're going. It's fun. It makes you think about music in ways that you normally don't think about it. So I, I love working on video games. Yeah. And, you know, I'm thinking about just your entire career. I mean, I, I'm, I'm curious to know, because obviously you're, you're, you're so, you've worked in so many different different media and just different projects. I mean, we haven't even touched on like your, you know, your, your career as like a visual artist. And so just looking at your, just thinking back to your career as a whole, I mean, what would you say has been your most significant challenge, whether it's, uh, or, or your most significant creative roadblock, I should say, like whether that's been a specific project or just mm -hmm. you just kind of being stuck in some way, like what has been your, the most significant creative challenge that you've faced in your career? You know, when I came out here, I was very suspicious of Hollywood. And after I did uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse, I did some shows and some commercials that made me even more go, oh, this isn't really about art. This is about, you know, Pee Wee's Playhouse is pretty great. But there were projects I did. And then I, you know, some of them were commercials. And I'm like, and commercials I was already fascinated with from my younger years because when, when we were at Kent and I was telling you about how Rebellion, you know, got squashed, we were looking around trying to figure out, well, how do people change things? And we decided it was Madison Avenue changes things through subversion. You know, they, they lure people in and that's why we went to Hollywood. Okay, so... Um, you know, I remember first being kind of suspicious of stuff, and in commercials, I'd put subliminal messages. It was so easy to, like, in the middle of a 
Hawaiian Punch commercial go, sugar is bad for you. Underneath a drumbeat, sugar is bad for you. And I remember Bob Casale, who was my engineer, he'd go, you shouldn't do that. You're gonna, we're gonna lose the job. And then we went to, um, God, what was the name of the, I can't even remember the name of whatever agency it was that's so many years ago. And, oh, Daily and Associates. We went over to Daily and Associates. We're sitting with the producers and the, the director and everybody. And we're getting where they're playing this minute long Hawaiian punch commercial and it's getting near, near the end. And I'm like, Oh God, here it comes. I shouldn't have done it. And you know, and I put sugar is bad for you. And then the robot I did in a robot voice that was on the commercial book, Hawaiian punch hits you in all the right places. Then it goes into the big ending. And, and there's like these, like, um, you know, these people at the, at, at the adage going like this tapping, going, oh, Hawaiian Punch does hit you in all the right places, you know, and they were like high-fiving each other, and I'm like, and then Bob Gazzali's looking at me like, how do you get away, how did you get away with that? And I'm just like, wow, that was great. And so I, I used to, oh, I, I have somewhere at the studio, I have about a half-hour reel of commercials that, where I put in things like, choose your mutations carefully underneath something in the spot. So it was just low enough that if you know it's there, you can hear it. But if, you, if you're listening, if you're not listening for it. And it was after um, about a year and a half, I had um, an editor call me from, you know, on some commercial I was working on and he goes, Mark, I heard what you put in that the spot and I need you to take it out. And I'm like, oh, uh, sorry about that. And it was the first time anybody had ever like called me on it. And it took, but I, I have this reel that's just all the commercials with all the, uh, and, I, and I, I, I always wanted to take that reel and just print it, print, you know, along with whatever it was like, like um, question authority or whatever it was that I put into the commercial. I just wanted to, you know, like do a whole reel and just show somebody, you know, like, um, like 50 of commercials with that in it and just kind of was always moving forward and lost interest. But, um, I love that. <laughs> and, you know, honestly, just to, just to wrap up, I mean, it's something that I love to ask all my guests on this podcast is, you know, how knowing that it is such an, an abstract idea in so many ways. I mean, how have you come to define creativity? I, I didn't have any confusion when I was a kid of having a lot of possessions. <laughs> so that made it easy. So it's like, so it's like, it was something that I could, I could create something, you know, on a piece of paper, or it could be an activity that I could create in my mind. And it, it like was a way to deal with things that, that I was confused by in the real world, uh, or that I was like, shocked by or or um or it made me laugh and so for me um and and it's turned into this it's like for me creativity is is um it's just kind of like doing what i do and that is um paying attention to what's going on around me in the world and you know it's like um we're in a part of the universe where the ribbon of time flows in one direction only. We can, you know, we get older, we, you know, you can like, in some ways you can like, in your mind, revisit things from the past. You can, you can like, 
try to hang on to things from your childhood. I decided when I was a, a young man, I said, I'm never going to grow up. I do not want to grow up. I do not want to be an adult. I hate adults. They're all screwed up. I don't know any adults I respect. And um, that pretty much lasted until um, Brian Eno and David Bowie said, we'll pay for your first album. You don't need a record deal. We'll, we'll fly you to Germany and we'll record you. And uh, we'll, I'm sure we'll be able to sell it. And um, then I started like that. And then I could say, oh, I met some adults I like. <laughs> and, um, right. and uh, you know, so I, I eventually learned to like adults. But, but um, I love that. I love that. And listen, I would I would much rather you continue to create than to, you know, focus on getting buff. So keep doing what you're doing, because I have been such a huge fan of your career. And you are definitely one of the most creative people that that I can think of, because you just do so much. So keep it going. Well, thank you. I'm taking that as a compliment, because I know, because I know if I said it to somebody, I might be being a smart ass. So. <laughs> well, Mark, thank you so much for your time. I absolutely appreciate it. It's been such a pleasure. Well, thank you. And, and stay safe, uh, please. We need okay. Thanks for listening to Creative Conversation. Be sure to subscribe to Creative Conversation wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing on this podcast, don't forget to rate and review. We always love hearing your feedback. I'm your host, Casey Finey.